Welcome to the Berkeley Technology Law Journal Podcast. I'm Nick Calcaterra. In today's podcast, our hosts Shante and Tony speak with Carrie Leroy, a partner at the Silicon Valley office of White and Case. They discuss whether artificial intelligence may create intellectual property. All right. Thank you so much, Carrie Leroy, for joining us in another podcast. Miss um, Leroy is one of the tech transactions and IP transactions leader at White & Case. Uh, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your path to this area of law? Yeah, sure. So, and thank you for having me on your show. So, um, I'm a, a Berkeley grad from the class of 2000, Berkeley Law. And uh, my path is I started, uh, started at a firm and did intellectual property licensing. I went in-house for a while where I headed up intellectual property transactions for a major semiconductor company. Went back to private practice. Um, I was at Skadden Arps for about nine and a half years and afterwards joined White and & Case and I've been a partner at White & Case for almost a year now. Um, and it's a really interesting area of law. Um, I live in Silicon Valley. My clients are all focused on technology and innovation. It's a creative, thriving, interesting area of law, and um, so my path was really just being drawn to being a part of that in some way. So I just love feeling like I'm, I'm a part of coming up with solutions to problems around innovation. I give a lot of advice on things like intellectual property ownership and protection and monetization. It's a very cool area. Certainly. And yeah. I just heard you give an interesting discussion at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Could you tell us a little bit about what robots and AI have to do with the law? Yeah, I mean, that's a very open-ended question, but I will say that um, we are moving into a direction where there will be um, a significant amount of creativity that is either a product of artificial intelligence or at least somehow informed by artificial intelligence. And so the talk that I just gave really focused on the current intellectual property protection regime in the United States and whether or not AI creativity, or we say can you know robots um, have intellectual property rights, you know whether um, machine generated creativity is capable of fitting within the current constructs or there'll need to be some changes uh, to adapt to, to the future of AI creativity. Absolutely. Can you tell us about some of the major fields and the examples uh, where artificial intelligence is intersecting with intellectual property? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there are there are several areas. Um, uh, there's machine learning. There's areas of sort of data mining and figuring out um, uh, how to uh, match certain um, um, needs with particular users online. I make a distinction between artificial intelligence in the form of, say, software programming. Mm -hmm. So all of us rely on that to an extent now. We have uh, machines that are helping us to become more efficient, to get to places. These are software programs that are, are very helpful. We are entering a new phase where we will, we will be seeing an increasing amount of independent judgment exercised by machines to solve mm -hmm. problems. And that will be an interesting area um, as I said uh, during my talk, I have a lot of questions myself because this is really a nascent area. Uh, we will see broad implications. In, uh, in my talk, we focused a lot on autonomous driving, self-driving cars, you know, and what, what the legal liability 
landscape will look like, and we focused on things like ownership of copyrights and patents, um, and how, you know, whether or not machines can actually have receive credit under our current system for that type of intellectual property. Um, but, you know, we will see that uh, it, it artificial intelligence does and will continue to impact many different fields across sectors um, from, you know, from aviation, drones, self-driving cars, to um, sensor technology, things that help us to get around um, to make decisions. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see the shift away from human consciousness and decision-making to machine consciousness and decision-making. Right, so you're really differentiating between what a human is putting in and using the software, or the particular machine, to sort of facilitate what the human is putting in as opposed to the machine sort of taking that autonomy and yeah, that's, going through the decision-making process itself. That's exactly right. And okay. so I think of it as sort of like if you think of problem-solving, I could ask my calculator, which is technically a machine, I could say, what's 2 plus 2? Mm -hmm. And it will spit out an answer. It will say 4, mm -hmm. I hope. Um, <laughs> but if, you know, that's, that's simple, right? Mm -hmm. I asked it something, it told me. It's a machine that's mm -hmm. telling me an answer. Mm -hmm. If I ask my machine to solve a problem for me, like I would like to develop a new mobile phone, a new cell phone, that is superior to the current market-leading phone, whatever that is. Um, I would be saying something more abstract, like make it better, make mm -hmm. it make it work better. Mm -hmm. Have it you know, make sure that it has all kinds of bells and whistles that will make it more appealing to consumers. Now, these are the things. If you are someone, uh, an engineer, part of a design group, you might think about how do we make our product superior. What will happen when you ask a machine? that will basically mine data fields out there online, will read all of the patent applications, will read all of the patents out there to find out and map those to the best-selling products and figure out, mm. oh, I can solve your problem. Here's how you're going to do it. Right. And will actually come back to uh, tell us, you know, not a simple an answer to a simple question like what's 2 plus 2, but mm -hmm. how do I improve something? How do I solve my problem? How do I make my artwork better? Mm -hmm. Hey listeners, it's Tony here. Just wanted to give you a little bit more background. So in copyright, what we're talking about is a creative work fixed in a tangible medium. A creative work could be a book, a photo, music. In tangible medium, think of something that records or fixes that creative work. So that would be the physical sculpture, the plaster, the writing on a piece of paper, the recording of the audio on a vinyl record or an mp3 file. For copyright, the basic idea is that when you make a creative thing, you get a copyright, which means that you have a property right in that thing. The key function of that property right is you can exclude others from using it. They can't copy your book. They can't sell your audio. As soon as you make the work, you have the exclusive rights to use it. But when you register with the federal government and register your copyright, then you'll get more tools for suing. Patents relate to inventions. You have an exclusive right to use that invention. So an invention could be a type of medicine, a machine, a specific process. Compared to a copyright, you need to do a lot more work to get that protective right, that property right. You basically need to put together an application and send it to the federal government that shows what your invention does. If the government thinks it meets certain requirements, you'll get an exclusive right to use it. One important part of this application are the claims of the invention. This is the core of the patent. They define what the patent is 
and what it is not. The danger of making really broad claims is that the patent office will look at it and think, this is too broad, this has already been invented, and reject the application. The other really important part of the application are the teachings of the patents. Basically, you need to show other people how this invention works. Yeah, and so that's touching on copyright and patent, but maybe we can split those apart. You know? mm -hmm. For our users, copyright could be all sorts of different creative things, but how are you advising your clients right now to think about the originality requirement in copyright law when it comes to AI or any type of machine or computer-generated creative works? Yeah, so that's a good question. So just starting with copyright, uh, to have a copyright, you need to have some sort of original creative input. Um, there was a recent case involving, you know, the famous monkey selfie case mm -hmm. where um, it was made clear, again, that you need to have a human element. You can't just have, you know, an animal or random generated creative output. It has to be, there has to be some human involvement. Now, these questions are, are new, and a lot of my clients are not running to me saying, how do I make sure that my software program is going to continue to be copyrightable? They're not thinking that far ahead. Right. Uh, but I do imagine that at some point they will be focused more on this question of making sure that if the machines, if you have, for example, a team, your engineering department is now 15 machines and one human being, mm -hmm. what I would tell that client from an IP perspective is make sure that that one human being reviews, modifies, improves, does something different with the output generated by the machines to make sure that you are continuing to demonstrate that you have human involvement as opposed to just machine-generated output. And is that on the front end of the coding and the optimization that goes into the AI itself, or is this after the fact once the AI spits out whatever result? Is it combing through that final product that the machine generates? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, that's a good question. It, it could be actually on both sides, right? Because if you have machines that, again, depending on what you're asking the machine to do, if I'm giving you something, if I'm saying, here's my software program, now improve it, and that's the input that it's getting. Um, I still own the, the software program. The question about what is it doing in terms of improving it, mm -hmm. if I didn't really have anything to do with it and it was making independent decisions, there's a question about whether that's my creative input or if the machine is just making these decisions independent of my input. But I would say on both sides, making sure that humans are involved on the input um, and saying, here are the parameters, here's what the limits are. And you know, as lawyers, we need to always think about, okay, did we build in the right legal framework and limitations as well, because it's one thing to say, go out and, and build you know, a cool new device. If I didn't say, and what you can't do is go out and mine all of Apple's patents to figure out how to build in the functionality and features that make the iPhone 8 fabulous, that has to be built in as a limitation so that I'm not responsible for telling the machine to do something that is technically infringing. And on the other side of that, when the output comes out, like in the case of the monkey selfie, mm -hmm. where the photographer who went into the jungle to take a bunch of pictures uh, and left his camera laying around and the monkey just grabbed his camera and took a picture. In that case, had the photographer taken that picture and cropped it or added a filter or did something mm -hmm. with it, 
that demonstrated that he touched it, mm -hmm. there's a human element of creativity in that process, he would have had a copyright. The fact that it was completely untouched by a human, machine-generated output from a copyright perspective is not protectable. So unfortunately, all the videos of my security cam, my cat walking in front of it, those are all lost. And more importantly, the robot doesn't own, doesn't no. own the copyright. <laughs> and at this point, yes, um, it, it's not in the Copyright Act, but the Copyright Office has issued essentially recommendations so people understand um, advice about, you know, actually this does mean it has to be a human. Right. And the patent, patent law is much more clear on this point human inventorship is very clearly defined within the Patent Act. And could you tell us more about that within the Patent Act? How, does, how, how can you advise clients to devise their claims uh, in a way they're going to capture as broadly as possible but still also educate um, sufficiently within the terms of the patent? Yeah, that's another good question. So we right now we're looking at a lot of, I, I would say there's somewhat suspect patents that issue um, on the basis of what looks like machine-generated creativity hmm. or inventiveness. Mm -hmm. And so if anybody takes their invention or method and talks to a patent prosecution attorney, that attorney's going to say, well, you need to list yourself as the inventor. So that's going to be the advice now. Mm -hmm. There may be changes to that in the future that, you know, that assume some degree of machine creativity. There are patents on things like the creativity machine. And if you read the claims of the patents, it sounds like it's not just designing a machine that does these things. The claims actually cover the creative output of the machine, which technically you would then say, well, that claim, the inventor should really not be the person who created the machine, but the machine that is actually doing that independent inventive act. So we will see what that means in the future. So far, this has been untested in the courts, but it may be that there are more challenges to those kinds of patent claims, um, validity challenges, where you know if those patents are enforced against third parties, that those parties will then say, wait a minute, uh, who's the real inventor here? Can you think of any policy reasons that would kind of explain that difference between why it sounds like in copyright, they're saying absolutely not, it needs to be a human person who's added some modicum of originality or creativity um, in order for it to be copyrightable. But in patent, it sounds like that might be a little bit more murky. Can you think of any policy reasons why that difference might exist? I think that um, the patent law is is assuming human inventorship, mm -hmm. uh, not because machine inventorship is inferior. Mm -hmm. It's because it simply didn't exist. So a lot of this we're now looking at. Well, this is a new era. Mm -hmm. um, we're about to have you know drones dropping off our kale uh, from the <laughs> Whole Foods Amazon merger. You right. know. And it, it's a new era, and so there are going to be all these changes. Um, I think I don't I don't think um, you should have more protection for your intellectual property if you're the person or the company that invested in the creativity machine, and whatever that machine does, in my mind, that should probably still be yours, and you should be able to patent it, even if it's exercising some degree of independent judgment. Mm -hmm. um, but our system doesn't really contemplate that. Um, it's interesting in the UK, they have a slightly different copyright law, which does focus on um, the extent of your investment. It's more of an investment model, you know, expended resources, it's your time, you're the photographer who went into the jungle and spent all this money on cameras, 
if anybody has a copyright, it's you uh, because of that alone, even if your creativity wasn't really involved in it. Yeah, so we may see it. We may see the U.S. intellectual property system move more in that direction as well. Now, is the solution for clients to counsel them more into the direction of trade secret? Yeah, no. Okay, so and, and I do think this is another um, an area that I feel that we'll see evolve. Right now, we look at it as patent protection is you know of high value. Mm-hmm. You see most litigation that you know in the patent area, you see these. Uh, very high judgments against infringers. You can receive a royalty and license fees Mm -hmm. uh, for infringement of a patent, and it is the right to exclude other people. Trade secrets don't have that value. In other words, if two companies come up with the very same brilliant idea, they can each exploit it separately and independently as long as they keep that idea a secret Mm -hmm. and they use reasonable... um, processes, you know, measures to protect the confidentiality of the trade secret. Mm -hmm. So trade secret law doesn't require creativity or a human element necessarily. It just requires that you have an idea that has value that you keep a secret. And if you do that, um, you can continue to exclude people from using your trade secret unless they independently come up with it. So a good example is like the Coca-Cola formula, right? Mm-hmm. So we may see more of this where someone who's looking, they, they purchase the creativity machine, that machine is coming up with solutions to abstract problems. Like, I would like to improve this process. Help me out with that. I have no idea what to do. I'm not even an engineer. And, you know, mm-hmm. help me solve this engineering problem, creativity machine. Yeah. The machine is actually coming up with the idea well, did you consider these five things? What if you did these two things first and then this other thing? You follow the steps. The machine solves your problem. Mm-hmm. You may not be able to have a patent on that, but you could keep it a secret. Mm-hmm. And as long as you keep it a secret, and that's to say that other people could go out and buy the creativity machine and it could come up with the same solution. But, you know, again, as long as it's independently developed, everybody can use their own tra- trade secrets and they can exclude people from using their trade secrets unless they separately and independently came up with them and they can prove that. So um, I think it is. it could become more of the default intellectual property protection for AI. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things is at the same time with these AI machines like driverless vehicles, we're seeing for heightened call regulation for you know, the government or NHTSA saying, well, let's take a look under the hood and find out how exactly this car is going to make these decisions. Is trade secrets still going to be able to survive as a viable protection when we have regulators prying into the various forms of decision making? Yeah, that's that's. I think that is certainly one we will have to see how that evolves. Um, you don't necessarily lose your trade secret protection because you disclose it to a think tank or the government. Um, if it becomes part of a recommendation or um, you know an official sort of statement about mm-hmm. here are the here are the parameters here are the rules yeah you don't have a trade secret anymore because right. it'll be in the public domain mm-hmm. um, so we'll we'll have to follow that um, that'll be an interesting area to see to see how that evolves yeah, so one of the other questions that we had was um, how do you anticipate um, artificial intelligent inventors granting consent so if the Robots or the machines or the creative machines themselves are the ones that have produced a thing, a software, a code. 
Um, how do you see them granting consent? Is that sort of? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and it again assumes some kind of human consciousness. I like these questions that you know. In in my talk today, we talked about. Um, the question of like what's a reasonable person from a negligence standard mm -hmm. well what's a reasonable self-driving car mm -hmm. autonomous vehicle um, you're responsible for certain kinds of infringement if you have knowledge what does that mean for you know an autonomous vehicle right it doesn't have consciousness um, so even that the way that that question is phrased is, is interesting because thinking about a machine giving consent does a machine have the same rights as a human being? That's going to be one of the questions that is answered from a policy perspective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our intellectual property regime right now says absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Machines are like the monkey in the jungle. Mm -hmm. you, no, you don't have the same rights. If you are the owner of the machine and your machine is, you've either built the machine or you've paid for the machine and it's doing something for you, then... Um, there's, there's, there's nothing that says you can't use the results without the consent of the machine. I think, again, that's a very sort of human-centric concept of right. like, you can't infringe my rights. Well, my, my rights as a person, that's mm -hmm. sort of missing from that. But yeah. so far, we don't live in a time where machines really have rights. I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, like don't let them hear in the you. Sci-fi, <laughs> yeah, in the sci-fi sci films, it seems like we shouldn't give them too much power. But That's I true. think we're, we're not quite there yet. I'm going to yeah. hedge here and say that I welcome our robot overlords, and I'm willing to be a pet rather than a slave in the future. Yeah, well, I just want them to do all the work for us that we don't want to do. Exactly. That'd be ideal. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Miss Leroy. It was my pleasure speaking with you today, and thank you again for coming by. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Ashante Westmoreland and Tony Beadle, with production help from me, Nick Calcaterra. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast so we can reach other listeners. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other persons or organization. The information presented is not legal advice, is not to be acted on as such, may not be current, and is subject to change without notice.